Welcome, welcome, welcome to welcome to another uh, Surf and Sales Bonfire session. Richard and I are happy to have everybody here, and we're going to talk through some of the things that you need to be thinking out, thinking about for your uh, 2022 planning. And we've got our friend Justin Michael here from uh, Hype Cycle, That's right? right? Yep, we went. I only just learned how to pronounce this, like uh, you know, two days ago. So. We there don't would... believe in vowels. That's the key. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> vowels are not your friend. Is that the problem? We're from vowels Finland. Are not your friend. Right. We're, we're in the fjords. <laughs> yeah, so we're going to talk about growing your sales team for 2022. And um, the questions will drive the conversation. And obviously, Richard and I can try to facilitate and, and funnel some questions Justin's way. But we'd love to hear from you and have some audience interaction as well. We want to thank our uh, good friends and sponsors over at Salesforce. For helping us put this on as well as uh reggie.ai who i know sponsors uh justin's events as well we're also sponsored by vidyard as well as outreach so we've got some of the most badass tech companies um you know behind us sponsoring us supporting us helping put these events on recording them sharing them distributing them with the whole sales and revenue universe and uh yeah i think we're uh, ready to get going what did i miss richard anything uh, I think the only thing we missed was uh, thanks everybody for coming to this instead of Dreamforce because we know that's the big, big part, big party this week, right? So thank you for your attention. Uh, super excited, uh, Justin. Why don't you? Well, first thing, I'd love for people to go into the chat, create some interaction. Where are you dialing in from? Uh, just let us know. Put questions in the chat. Scott and I will be monitoring that. We'll get you to come off mute to ask your question. You can send them directly to us, or you can do it in the group. Feel free to engage in the chat as well as, as you hear ideas, keep rolling with them in the chat. It always makes things a lot more interesting and fun. Um, so Justin, tell everybody what you're doing. What, what is it called? Hype, what, hype, hype cycle. cycle. It's called Hype Cycle. Hype Cycle. Yeah. Okay. And I, I do have a, an awesome co-founder named Julia Nimchinski, and we met through something called Rev Garage, which was a cold call battle that um, was one facet of a go-to-market strategy. And... Uh, you know, a lot of ideas were flying around. She brought this idea of, well, what if sellers and marketers switched roles? And I was kind of like, oh, I don't want to do marketing, you know? Um, but she was starting to do outbound campaigns. And so it just seemed like this, this weird fish on a bicycle, you know? And then when you talk to GTM leaders like Scott Lease, the first thing he gets in, he, he backs out of sales and he's talking about positioning, marketing, the C-suite, how to build leadership. And so it just was this bigger conversation. It turned into a, a game called the GTM games. And I, look, I can rattle on. Um, I, I am long winded. <laughs> so I want to meter myself and make this interactive. But yes. So Justin, what do you, you know, just from a background perspective, so people get where your answers come from as we go through questions, like give everybody the 30 second, you know, I was an SDR, I was an AE, I was a sales leader. I was, you know, uh, Scott, uh, least disciple degenerate? Like, what are those things? I want to say I tried to get Scott Least to hire me at several points in my career. And I didn't live in Austin. That was problem one. Uh, problem two, I was pretty overconfident like 10 years ago. Like I, I went through a Benjamin Buttons uh, progression where I was in small incubators uh, in my mid-20s. And I'd, I'd be like the COO of a, a one-person incubator. And we'd raise like 300k and I just we just thought we were the king of the world right so um I moved to San Francisco when I was 31 and I did I somehow made it to work for Salesforce and um there was a really interesting experience trained in Indianapolis exact target and uh yeah I would just keep in touch with Scott that whole time and uh the companies he was building my background was inside sales before the SDR term was really floating around it was it was popularized in Silicon Valley but where I was you just you're inside, you're on a phone, like after the collapse in 2007, the market crash. And I was like a commission only rep, like hair of the dog, 3 a.m., get up. And like, the only way I got paid is if I closed deals and I onboarded the clients too. <laughs> uh, so it was pretty cool. It was uh, like just full metal jacket, you know, a hundred calls a day. And um, that was, you know, me at 27. And then I, I worked for a wide variety of startups. I ended up becoming a director of sales and an RVP and a VP, but I, they always, they never let me be the coach. It's always like player coach. Hey, can you do top funnel too? Can you take the SDRs too? Dialing SDRs. And so I was always had this weird knack on the top funnel piece. And I just became like a specialist at that. 
I probably worked for too many companies. I probably made a lot of mistakes, but like I always nailed the top funnel. So I was always in demand. And um, yeah, I turned 40 and I'm like, wow, I've been in sales for 20 years. Something I fell into. <laughs> so I decided to write uh, a book called Tech Powered Sales, which actually was printed and shipped in America yesterday. Um, so I'm really proud of that. Pick it up. And uh, yeah, I've been doing consulting the last couple of years. It's just kind of caught on. And I, Richard Harris is actually the person about two or three years ago. He said, hey, why aren't you doing sales consulting? I'm like, I can't do that. <laughs> you were the first person really to write to me about that, man. So thank you. I, I have advanced so many careers of consultants far beyond <laughs> in my success, far beyond my success. Like it, it annoys me. Next time I'm going to just tell everybody you owe me equity. So um, true. <laughs> so let's, uh, let's dive in though. So I know that one of the first things that we people were interested in was the top three skills that sales leaders overlook when hiring, right? And this was something you and I talked about offline, but what, you know, what are some of those skills? And then we'll talk about how do you determine what they are? Yeah. Thanks. Thanks for asking. I have hired um, hundreds of people because I actually came out of telesales before tech back in the day, I was sort of in the boiler room, uh, Wolf of Wall Street environs where there, there really were quite a few scripts you could build and, you know, different types of tactics, which these days I'm, I'm very transparent. So I love to look for grit, you know, um, even if someone doesn't come out of a traditional sales background. Also, I've, I feel like communications is an art form. Like it's a great college major to go to college and not really study, you know, but <laughs> it's actually human communications is very difficult to, to master the art of uh, just communicating with a diverse array of people and being, you know, skilled at conveying messaging. So I look for writing and communicating and it's sort of an X factor, great communication. And um, yeah, uh, the adaptability, like adaptation. So how do you, cause I, you know, you know, grit is the new hustle, right? Like that's the word that everybody's <laughs> using these days. Right. Yeah. Um, how do you determine grit? Like, what do you, you're interviewing someone, you know, they look good on paper. They've, you know, they, they seem to have a nice pedigree, you know, uh, but how do you know if they have grit? Sometimes they get gritty about how they try to get the job, which is interesting. Like I don't try to head fake them and like not respond to an email or not set it up, but there are these candidates that have a way of, you know, starting to like work the interview, like a sales process. They're like organizing the calendar, the agenda, they're following up with me. They've put the zoom on, like they're, they're running a process with, with great uh, precision and finesse and persistence. And I'm going, you know, you see people buy you the way it's the way you sell, not the product. And so the first impression is everything like beginnings are important. Um, I always say from acorns Oaks. So you can kind of see in the first interactions culturally, how it's going to be a fit. Um, I have a lot of action bias, even to a fault. Like I'm a doer. I'm, I want to execute. So um, I do relate to, to Scott um, in this regard is um, right. I kind of almost, almost see Scott Lee's as like the Kurt Cobain of, of sales. He, like, he didn't say, oh, I'm going to go like write a book. You know, people have said, Scott, like you keep succeeding. Can you put it in a book? They like made him write a book. <laughs> you know, he's not Guess he made him write famous. a book. Guess he <laughs> made him write a book. So I'll give you yeah, one so guess. I just like, it's, it's, I'm, and I'm not saying there's not a space for philosophy and there's a lot of trainers who have the, the art and gift of coaching and there's value all around. But what's really interesting is like, who are the quiet people that aren't in the LinkedIn feed necessarily and are getting really big results right now? We don't know who they are. And can we study them and find them? You know, I have a friend named Garrett, who's a monster at sales, taught me a lot of what I do today. And he's really known in an industry. Um, he's like on the board of the, uh, IAB, like the advertising bureau, but he's not known as like a sales thought leader, but a lot of, a lot of the inspiration is just being on the road with him and observing him and then trying to articulate what it is I'm seeing him do. Um, you know, I used to not think there's closers. This is like, you give him a bad deal and he'll just go close it. It's the weirdest thing. I mean, he's so... <laughs> All right, you're, you're hitting on a lot of things. So I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to interrupt you. Sure. Have, coming, coming back to grit. Right. So I like one example of, are they controlling the interview process? Right. Are they, are they coming after you, you know, you know, obviously in a respectful manner, what else helps you determine if they have grit? Um, I think it could be the life story and overcoming challenges and 
various uh, traumas and opportunities. And, um, you know, I, I don't, I don't want to give any judgment here, but I, there's just inspirational factors, you know, it's learning about their personal and professional wins, whatever they want to open up about, like, you know, walk me through overcoming an obstacle or learning a skill or a time that you felt you mastered something and how you knew you did. And I'm a really big proponent of situational explanations. Like, I love to say, just like, take me through the last deal you did the entire way. Like, as it's just like a multi-touch attribution waterfall, like tell me the entire story from the minute you saw that piece of business all the way to close one in as granular detail as you possibly can take me down to the wire. Cause this is where I find the gaps. Right. And then it's like, well, Oh yeah. What are, you, what are you looking for when you ask somebody to tell that story? Because if you asked me to tell that story, I feel like I would fail that exercise. What? I, I, I really do because I don't pay attention to like every minute detail like that. I don't think that way. I don't communicate that. Okay, I got to call way. bullshit, Scott. You wrote a I book don't. called You wrote a book <laughs> called Addicted to the Process. Yeah, but I'm not, but that that process is different to me than being able to identify like this deal that I closed 3 months ago or last year. Walk me through that deal, Scott. Like how did it show up? What did you say? How many times did you talk to them? What transpired to get it? That would be tough for me. So I I, I I'm just trying to, I'm trying to get you to articulate like the things somebody should look for there and, you know, not overlook a candidate who might be really good, who struggles with that. Yeah. So I'm really big into different learning styles and psychology and everyone has like six or seven levels of genius. Um, Aaron Ross calls us 31 flavors of SDRs. I call it XDR all bound. There's all sorts of ways to get on a phone. Um, you could be a data analyst, you could be a targeter, you could be a social seller, but I think it's right. If I'm sensing this is a, maybe a person that, um, you know, their level of communication is via empathy. Uh, you don't have to be a Rhodes scholar. It, they have a certain ethics presence, right? Like you as a senior leader, I, I have a certain trust factor that you're going to tell me just a strategy or a tactic. All I'm trying to do is try to figure out um, not to prove them wrong necessarily, but I want to understand how the deal was hard and there was a challenge and there was like a turning point where they influenced it. I want yeah. to understand their impact on that sale somehow. So sometimes yeah. that question will work and you might say, oh, that's too, that's way too fine grain. I don't think like that. And I would say, well, okay. Um, what about a point in a sales cycle where it broke down and you yeah. pushed through it? And like, I just want to try to get in that scenario because yeah. then I can see how you sell. That's yeah, that makes, that makes a lot more sense to me. Because I think you, you have to be able to articulate some some of those things, but you don't necessarily have to go into like all of the granular details. And on some level, you're trying to gauge how does this person think? How do they think? How do they overcome? How do they get around? How do they how do they recall? What did they learn through that process and how are they applying it moving forward? So that makes sense to me right now. One of the things that I think is almost universal with sales leaders right now is they're struggling to find talent. And as you prep for 2022, you really need to be hiring all these people right now who are going to be productive in 2022. If you wait till January, which a lot of sales leaders make the mistake of, and a lot of founders don't authorize the hiring until January. The problem is you spend cycles recruiting those people. Then you spend cycles onboarding those people and it's fucking April or May before they're even building any kind of pipeline and being productive. So how are you, how are you coaching leaders right now to stand out, win the deal, if you will, in terms of the recruiting war, get in front of as many people as possible. How, how are you, how are you advising folks on that right now? I saw that post from Jocko from Winning by Design yesterday about the ballooning prices of all the SaaS players. How much? Yeah, everybody, everybody who read that was like, "Yes, I'm going about to, I'm about to get a big raise." We're all getting paid. Yes, yeah. I was like, I want to live in that world because in some of the worlds, uh, like the one I came from in mobile marketing, because of some of the moves Apple made with um, attribution tracking, some of the some of the salaries were impacted the other way because downward pressure on the technologies. It's almost like. You know, there's flux both ways. I see. Um, one of the huge things I used to do is you find a pocket of reps like DocuSign is hot, like 900 reps or something. So I'm up in Seattle and the DocuSign office is down the street. 
some people start working on my company that were a DocuSign. I'm like, who's great over there? And I'm like, who loves to make calls? Oh, there's this one guy, Alex. He's amazing on the phone. I call Alex and say, yeah, I got, I got, you know, I love it. There's some other managers. I want to be a manager. I got passed. I was like, what if you, instead of an SDR, you came over and be an AE? So I make that move sometimes where I take someone who's a really uh, assertive prospector, who's great at top funnel, and that's what the company needs. And so they need someone with a, a certain skill that's a piece of their AE bench that's kind of missing. And they'll give like a little rotational program to build them up in that new role. Um, purely hiring for SDRs and AEs, it's, it's those back channel calls. And these, these aren't interrogation calls. Um, it's really easy to find digital reps. It's hard to find uh, the bold and the daring I find because it, you kind of get a reputation. I think we know what that is, but just define bold and daring versus digital reps. Yeah. So, I mean, and I, I don't like, I want to be very careful. And that's a profile here because I've seen people, I, I worked with a, with an amazing rep. Um, I'll name him. His name is Matthew Claus, and he's the best with outreach.io I've ever seen. And he does the Josh Brown method and he gets the meetings and it all works. And it's like watching David Copperfield and he puts hours into it and he's extraordinary. He's a good cold caller too, but he's especially good at the personalization in the sequencers. He's in the book. Um, but what I usually find is if there's an aversion to the human to human piece, then it's really hard because you have to reach insane volumes. And some of the digital uh, methods, I'm kind of old school in this regard, uh, even though I write about it a lot, I find it to be like marketing analyst work. Like if you go to sell and you sit down and you put on Spotify and then you just like click a lot of stuff on a computer, it feels like demand gen, like a market, mini marketing agency. Like I like reps that are like, you know, they're going to go talk to people, talk to customers, you know, pick up phones. And it's just hard. It's a rejection, dense, tough, it's the harder things. Um, and, and maybe that's just a, a bias or preference, but I find that gets more success faster than the pure digital strategy. So what do you, so understanding that that's what a, a good rep can focus on and look like, what do you see as the way to win the war on recruiting though? Are you trying to recruit both styles? Like, do you want a team of both? Do you want you know, what do we need to do to, to get the people to come to us? Because I think that's a huge piece that we're trying to figure out. Yeah. I mean, we know that diversity wins champions, diverse teams, and you want all the 31 flavors and you want to go into the next predictable revenue, which is you take the factory and you put the people on the assembly line and you do the Henry Ford model. And then the people go away and then there's a robot and then there's a person coding the AI of the robotic arm. And then the whole factory is the robots, but then we actually have more jobs in every industrial revolution. So the first industrial revolution, the fourth generates more jobs. The humans are off the supply chain, but they're building the software. It's creating knowledge work. To take this analogy down to the, the road is, if you can subspecialize, everyone's like, let's do Moneyball for SDRs. You cannot Moneyball a binary system. You can't have an AE and SDR. We're going to do Moneyball with two positions. Uh, soccer has 11, baseball has nine, but uh, doing sales has two. So you need subspecialization. You need an SDR who only does social selling, a video-based SDR. So you just break up specialists until it's even more SEAL Team 6. And this is like the next wave is going to be subspecialization of the people and then convergence of the tech stacks. Um, I, I know. So, I spoke really so, how should, so how should people think about their onboarding programs in, uh, in, in, at the beginning of the year in 2022? Not everybody is, not everybody is virtual. Some, some people are, I think a lot of people are, some people are hybrid models. Some people are back in the office, like how are you setting up and advising people to set up their onboarding programs to, to make sure their, their new hires are set up for success? What are the things that you've got to put in place in order to have a successful onboarding program now? Yeah, I, I have, a, I am seeing a question from Eric Steves. I don't want to leave him hanging if that's part of the process. I, thanks. I just wanted to quickly ask, in real life last night, I was on the phone at seven o'clock with a guy who's like 25 and I know would write his own ticket in sales, but he doesn't know that yet. And I thought I would blow his mind showing him LinkedIn. You know, you can do LinkedIn only plays. You can get them talking to you. But my problem was that's how you convince a salesperson and he's not a salesperson yet. So what he was seeing is like, kind of, so what, what's the magic there? But what he was seeing was that well, this looks like something that's changing so fast. And I couldn't really actually find a compelling argument other than I saw some kind of potential in him. 
And I thought that that actually brought up something for this call that I just wanted to throw it out here is realize that think about the pools of people you guys have that don't know that they're salespeople out there. Like, great, you're reaching the ones that already have the interest and that makes sense. But there are a bunch of people right now that don't know that they would be amazing salespeople and that they would actually fly in this world that are just sitting there thinking they're something else right now. And I think that's the next wave is finding the messaging to bring those people. That's so inspirational. I have two stories to answer both questions. And um, I'm going to slow down a little, but I was talking to a cybersecurity company in Europe and they hired a, a hairdresser who was good at talking to people and he crushed as an SDR. Now, gift of gab and, you know, challenger sale and relationship building might not always be a fit, but comfort with talking to strangers and talking to a lot of people, it could be good. I mean, I teach uh, introverts phone methods of engineers, quiet people, how to call senior executives and just listen. And they do great. There's, there's a method for every style. The key is uh, it's, it's the creation of human ability. It's unlocking um, I sound like a Tony Robbins book here, but it's, it's a fire within. What I seek in my work is a self-actualized rep, which is from Maslow's pyramid of needs. The end of this day is when I set the SLA at the company of 50 calls a day, the first person that goes, I did 52, I did 53. Now, okay, why? Because you yourself wanted to do more, not because a manager is counting. Um, how do you find self-actualized rep? If you have the will, you can teach the skill. And, and that's so interesting. Like, that old adage, like people that, you know, can't do, but teach, there are doers and teachers out there. I know Richard Harris and Scott, I've met the people they've trained. I've seen the results firsthand. Um, so what do we need to do in the hiring right now? We're in this ridiculous market where I know companies in different countries that can't hire SDRs because there's none available in the U S there's 700,000 SDRs in tech. It's going to grow to a million. It's about 7 million reps. And so, um, you got, and it's, I'm not blaming generational. It's just like a market demand economics problem. I mean, <laughs> supply and demand. There's so many jobs. The SDR comes in, gives a verbal, goes to that employer, takes the other offer, and then never even reports back. And I don't blame that on a generation. That's just not, it's uncouth. It's not civil. <laughs> Whether it's, you're I just wrote, I wrote about this last <laughs> week and got all kinds of grief from people that you shouldn't do that. And, um, you know, the people who were giving me grief, the recruiters. It was like, you know, the recruiters were like, that's terrible. It's bad for your brand. It's bad for you. I'm like, who are they going to tell who would, you know, if Justin's at, at, you know, at DocuSign as a sales manager, who's he going to tell that I bailed on him after a week? He doesn't, he's got too much other shit to go do. He's got to go find the next replacement. And frankly, it's, you know, Justin's fault for not making sure I get paid at the market rate. You know, like there's compounding interest to another 10 grand at a job after at the next job, right? What's that going to do for me? two years from now, five years from now, 10 years from now. So, so I, I agree with you on that. So um, sorry, Justin, what, what else you were going to jump into something else. And I want, I want to move on to onboarding. Yeah. It's, it's one of the hardest problems right now is finding the talent. I've always been a proponent. Um, I mean, there, there's these universal laws. One is gravity. If I drop this anywhere on the planet, boom, you know, unless you're Jeff Bezos and you're, you know, hundred kilometers out and throwing Skittles and in zero G things are going to drop on this planet. Um, so one of the laws is quality over quantity. And so it's like, oh my gosh, we have sequencers and now we can do quality and quantity. It's a law. You can't defy gravity. So the same with human beings. If you want to like underinvest and try to get the lowest base salary and try to get away with paying the least, you know, it's, you, you can't win both a good, fast, cheap diagram. So I think it's really important to, uh, hire great people or people with a great attitude who didn't have a great training program. I, I think the solve, uh, Scott, to your question and your question, Richard, is it's a four-pronged system and people hate hearing this. One, <laughs> you need to invest in great people, which requires sometimes good recruiting. You then need to invest in getting them the tech that they need that's congruent with your go-to-market strategy. Then you need to train them on the tech because the vendor onboarding won't be enough. And then number four, you need to just train them in sales. Now, it now sounds like I'm just feeding everyone's coffers of this industry. But, well, but help, yeah. help, help, help some of the leaders on the, on the call and who will watch the recording um, create the and craft the argument to get the tools. My experience is not that sales leaders don't want the tools and, you know, are kind of trying to send their reps out 
into the jungle with nothing but a, a butcher knife. <laughs> my, my, my experience is that they try to ask for and lobby for the budget and, and are unsuccessful at getting through the CEO or the CFO and getting budget to go get this particular tool. And oftentimes they haven't crafted the message the right way, right? So how are you, how are you coaching people um, in a leadership role to kind of overcome that objection so they do get the budget to get the tech that helps the reps, which helps recruit more good reps? Yeah, so recently I've been inside some situations of tooling rebuilds of over $200,000. And I've been the champion brought in to talk about this and to get the stack, to advise on the stack and to make sure it gets purchased. And the thing I go is like, you know, when I worked at different companies, I put up, you know, millions of dollars in pipeline. My record was $6 million in pipeline in six months. It's real. I got a 10X award for it at a random company. No one's heard of, you know, that it's like Elon Musk expired. And I did that. And so the question is this, it's like, I, I, I talked to CFO. If, if you can put, if you can put in a hundred grand over here and I can turn it into a cash register instead of a cost center, if I can give a CFO an opportunity to put a hundred grand over here and get three X back. And I put the onus on the vendor and build the ROI calcs with the vendor and have the case studies and the reference calls. And I put a lot of accountability on the vendor, but I start that conversation in motion. So if we have the people, the process, the technology, we're trying to drive a three to five X pipeline. And we're not talking about leads or MQLs or meetings anymore, but it's opportunity creation because here's what I get at the end of the day. When I teach SDR, I'm like, you want to create a customer. Hitting your comp plan, your vanity metrics, how many meetings, how many opportunities is nothing. Feel the, the joy of creating a customer for the business. That is the pleasure of this job because everything else is just fake. So if I can get the company ready to get customers and I can get the emotion into opportunities, then we're just doing something real. Otherwise, you're in these weird dashboards where it's like, yeah, um, you know, you know, Johnny got seven sales and, and, and Susie got 12 and then you look at the pipe and the aging is like 356 days. And like, there's really no business happening here. There's just this great dance of the water lilies. It's like a Tchaikovsky ballet and no one is really creating business. We're all just spending VC money. You know, is anyone going to laugh? Applause? Yeah. Let's, um, I want to, I, I know Trisha had a comment and I was wondering if it also formed a question. So Trisha, I, I unmuted you. I didn't know if you wanted to jump in or you want me to get it started. Um, it wasn't so much an I a uh, question, but, I like the idea of when you were doing subspecialties, I'm, it just sparked an idea saying, okay, I've got somebody who writes really well. I'd have somebody who's really social. I have another who could talk all day on the phone, but neither one, none of those can do all of the three things very well. So it just sparked an idea of being able to change the dynamic of the team and then change the compensation that they would get so that they work better as a team and, see where that may lead what are, what are some of what are some of the ways that you might help trisha out justin and and build a comp plan that supports that kind of structure yeah so you'll need obviously some different commission systems a lot of times the sdr ae industrial complex is built and supported by the SaaS matrix because there's no way to buy software to have variable ratios for all your sdrs and aes and create this patchwork quilt of 31 flavors step one trisha is you're aware this exists like what we hold dear in SaaS as an sdr ae it is an industrial complex no one's come in and said we don't let's let's change all the acronyms and roles You've got someone who came out of Stanford, studied applied statistics, and is basically like scientist smart. They're sitting there clicking a button one at a time doing data entry. And I'm not relegating data entry. It's great. You can get it done in a lot of places in the world. You could do it yourself. But what if they're really gifted at podcasting or analyzing data? Or you want to put them in Tableau and have them take a course at night in R. And they want to start coding Python. I've, I've seen people who are first-year SDRs doing the most elaborate technical stuff and the company's just sort of ignoring that and being like, oh, where are the leads? You know, like just wasting the ability of that rep. So seeing the strength and the genius skill of each person and even 20% of the time being like, okay, you take the YouTube channel, you do this social thing and then maybe comping them with a, a bonus structure where there's spiffs or if you have the sophistication to do it, figure out what makes sense to them and have a variable comp plan based on the different roles on the team. Now, I mean, 
it does create issues with like, you know, balancing, but if everyone can kind of get toward the same OTE, so they feel maybe compensated differently for their specialization. Uh, I don't know, Scott, you may give me a demerit with that. That might create morale issues, but I mean, there's a guy named Justin Roth Marsh that's experimented with this stuff. Uh, which is the organizational design of the sales team itself. It's a lot of additional work and it's much harder than just doing SDRs and AEs. So yeah. What do you think? I just love all the references you're dropping because Scott's like, you know, aside from the matrix one, I don't think he remembers them, you know, I'm just getting ready for Scott to be like, might've picked up on uh, boiler room. (laughs) But I I love the industrial complex. That was hilarious. That's really, really, really cool. Um, I want to, um, yeah, I know. Let me go find it real quick. I know Henrik's on. Ah, yeah. So he to is on um, travel, so he can't come off screen. But come on screen. But what do you guys do to maintain the high level of performance and the operational tactics? And you know, his point was the shit tasks, right? I don't know, Henrik, if you can even type in what some of those shit tasks are. But uh, I'm curious to that. Uh, it, well, it's, it's probably. A, it, I would assume it's a lot of like administrative data entry, lead enriching, all of this kind of operational stuff. Um, so you're, you're asking me my style on this? Or what do you do? Yeah, how do you, how do you, I guess the question is, how do you coach a rep to, to work through it? And then two, how do you as a sales leader change the culture, right? To get your leadership to realize that typing in phone numbers is a colossal waste of time. So I was on about 13 sales teams and then it's really elaborate story how, but I've consulted it. It's somewhere closing in on 200 uh, entities on top funnel because I worked for a company called outbound works where we had a hundred customers at once where I ran what is RevOps of today. I was everything that broke was just on my desk. So I was working every waking hour and, and living in San Francisco one week a month and it was nuts. And we had uh, amazing VCs behind us. When I was actually in the field as a rep, as a VP or RVP, as a frontline seller, when I got on a team and no one was on a PIP, it worried me. I didn't feel like I was in a performance organization because there was no discipline. No one was being disciplined off the team. It was loose. There's a loosey-goosey feeling. So there's like the hand of love and the hand of steel, and we can do this in a humane way. But if there's no measurement of performance and accountability, and we're all just going to wing it and have this kumbaya culture, I love that. But I don't feel like I'm on uh, a strong team if there's if there's no discipline uh, funneling down. As far as taking work off the performers from a tech, technology perspective, and I've had engineers read the book, um, about 70% of what an SDR does uh, or a hunter can be automated. It could be. There's certain things like synthesis and acumen and trusted advisor stuff that that AI will not be built till 2050, 20, you know, probably the year 3000. So you're safe if you're being strategic. If you're sitting there doing data entry, there's ways to do it. You can have VAs do it. You can have like a data analyst team where you break off some SDRs that they do the targeting and enrichment. Um, I've worked with people that they love. They actually love working in Excel and doing pivot tables. And I used to nickname uh, a friend Macro because he just loved it. That was his strength. So... Let them work your data and figure out all the sources and ways to enrich it. So, yeah, I don't know if I got tangential there, but what do you think of that one? You did, but that's what you do. Like, that's why you're I a know. cyborg, right? That's okay. That's why people so, send me these. Right, exactly. But, the, but my real essence is this, right? Right. There you go. <laughs> uh, so there's, by the way, if anybody needs to uh, get through to Justin, that's how you get through, right? You, you, Woodcuts. You, Carve yeah, wood, wood at home, send it to me. I'll buy yeah. from you. <laughs> um, I think, I think part of the question becomes, I think it, it's for me, it's just, you got to put down the numbers and show them why you need to do it. But oftentimes executives don't want that. They don't want to know that you got an SDR to go out and build YouTube videos. They don't want to know that you've got an SDR who's sitting there writing, co- like to some extent, they almost feel like that's a marketing play uh, or, well, they should be doing data entry because that's just what it is. And it's too expensive to go buy, you know, one of the lead, lead gen tools. So um, so I think that's a, that's a play where you have to just put down the numbers. Um, I want to move on to, to the, the next topic of onboarding, which you hinted at, um, of, of, you know, what does a good onboarding process look like and how long should it go? There's a, and I'm, I'm setting you up with that second question. It's, I think it's good to get on phones within the first couple of weeks um, to have some playbooks. I love the drills 
Um, there's this uh, learning pyramid that from NTL. Um, it's it's some national transport. It's it's some uh, group that studies uh, retention of skills and knowledge. And basically, if you drill and teach, and um, uh, Kevin Dorsey calls us to teach back. If you drill and teach something yourself, the retention is ninety percent. If you just go to like go see masterclass or something and it's static or you know, then sometimes it's only twenty percent. So what's been successful with my training and coaching is pairing up the reps to tear each other's emails down, to look in their LinkedIn's, to look at their brands, to actually do mock cold calls. We did an amazing simulation with uh, Scott where he, he's the advisor looking at their pitch and he was awesomely hard, but it was real because then you go to do these role plays and everyone just is nice. And I'm just like, okay, now medium run it again. Now hard because the buyers who buy are the hardest to get to and the most skeptical and often the saltiest. That's when I know when someone's being really nice and getting long call, I'm like, this is not the buyer because ultimately like the buyer asks the hard questions because it's their money on the line. So in the onboarding process in the first two weeks, um, I'm developing subject matter expertise. I'm doing a lot of drills and here's one that might baffle everyone. I finally was in a company that forced me to do a full technical demo and it was awesome. Like the sunlight came out. Didn't mean I needed to know how to code. It meant that I knew where to click all the buttons and what everything meant in the dash. And I didn't need a sales engineer. It took me a month to nail it. And then I had to pass the test with the CEO and the CFO and the CTO. And they all sat there and they flunked me. They're like, it's good. It's not mind blowing. So I went back and did it again. I remember just jogging and running this script in my head to try to figure out where everything is. There's like these four tabs and there's this whole choreography of running a technical demo like a sales engineer. But it was really just discipline and repetition. That might not happen in the first two weeks, but I, I would. It's a contrarian statement. If you sell software and you can demo it and you don't have to actually code, but it's technical, you can learn to do it. I did. I don't code. That's what I got. That's really cool. I, I have this new theory I'm pushing is that people should move away from the word onboarding, because it feels like a finite amount of time, right? And it's, it's you know, it's a, at least call it an onboarding and coaching program, right? Or onboarding and ramping program or something, because it needs to go on for weeks and months, to your point, right? And there's sort of levels of it, right? There's systems levels and product knowledge and industry knowledge and use case and case study. Then there's this demo level version, and then there's the sales training version. And then there's, you know, there's just different pieces that just come over time. So I want to, I want to move on. I know Darren, um, um, uh, had a good question. So Darren, jump on in. Thanks Richard. Yeah. Cause I do have to drop. I apologize. But, uh, on the current, on the this previous discussion, we talk about, uh, you know, looking at the the strengths of whether they're SDRs, sales reps, account executives, whatever time you want to give them. Is there any standard tests out there that I can look at online to maybe put my team through a test to see where their strengths are? Because we're looking to reorg and do some uh, reshuffling as we go into 2022, and this is the perfect time. So uh, full disclosure, this is a sponsor of Hype Cycle Games. It's called Perception Predict. It is a yep. scoring algorithm using AI and ML on the intake survey form that can predict the ACV and TCV um, potential of reps. Uh, it's it, this is super space age, and it's um, good. Jonathan Wisman's behind it. There's also models by Dave Curlin and uh, K U R L A N. He he's been successful with this, and a lot of folks like that. Challenger itself builds uh, somewhat of a model going in. There's something I love by. Oh my God, Curtis, what is his name? It's called like Strength Finder 2.0. Can anyone help me? I know Strength Finder 2.0. That one's really interesting. You've got to get deep on that stuff. Um, Lori Richardson over at Score More Sales has one too that awesome. we all sort of know. I think the, um, the real issue um, that I think is, okay, so you go give them these tests. You as managers, what are you going to do with the results? And how are you going to coach to them? Because when I know that someone is the assertive and the uh, thinker or, or someone, someone's the quiet thinker versus the assertive go-getter, how am I going to coach them and how am I going to coach them together? And so there's a management <clears throat> piece that is often overlooked in my opinion, but I, you know, this, this is where Scott is a savant in my mind. Like this is where Scott is really good at knowing well, you, how to motivate people. This is, you know, Slight contrarian point of view here, potentially, Darren, but um, I believe that these tests 
are helpful, but they're not definitive. Yeah. Right. Yeah, I mean, I, I inherited a sales force that out of the 13, I would have hired two myself. Right. You know, so I'm going through this process now to, I, I've, I've lived and died by top grading for sales. I forget who the author was. I had it here. Um, Bradford Smart and Greg Alexander. I've been using it for years. And that's been my problem. I'm just so myopic. I'll just say, okay, I grab onto one thing and I'll say, oh, this one I'm going to use it. And now listen to you guys. There's just a breadth of uh, information that I, I want to do research on myself. But uh, yeah, I do understand that. Once you do the testing, uh, you can't just assume, right, oh, you got these answers. This is what you're best at. You still have to understand the personalities. You still have to understand yeah. you know, what, what their goals are. You know, like you say, I'm not going to hire an SDR or, or, or an account executive that has been selling multi-million dollar deals and put them in the SaaS sales where, you know, he's selling cybersecurity at two cents or two dollars a user. It's not going to happen. Uh, but this is good stuff. I appreciate it. I do have to drop. I'll listen to the rest. I do have one thing to end on. My last new hire, the one guy I hired, he was the director of operations for a restaurant chain. Hmm. And what we do, we're a distributor of uh, cloud security services. Go figure. He's now my top sales guy. Yeah. There I, you found, go. I found that he had the will to succeed. I had multiple interviews with the guy because I was very, uh, you know, little, little, little antsy on, 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 taking somebody from that extreme. But when he got on board, the onboarding, uh, which I hate that word too, but the, the training we've done with him and just, just uh, practice, what he pre practice what I preach, right? So when I tell these guys, right, and we sell to managed service providers and IT resellers. So when he got his deck, I made the calls for him. I did the introductions. I said, this is how you do, this is what you do. So I've always been a uh, practice what you preach or, or, or um, you know, that kind of development, if you will. And uh, this guy has the highest percent growth of his deck than anybody. Yeah. Uh, so, I know you have to go, Darren, but there's yep. one of the highest level GMs in the Salesforce marketing cloud ran restaurants. And he used to walk me through a crazy service when like 200 people came to these, this restaurant, how he had to get everyone to coordinate. And he says the same with the big enterprise team. So yeah, well, do, uh, Justin, my degree is in hotel, restaurant, and institutional management. It's tough. That's one of the toughest. And then Scott forks up in Arizona State. <laughs> ah, <laughs> shit. Damn it. <laughs> yes. Finally, I get support. Finally, no more Wildcats are on the call. Oh, God. Yeah. No, no, no. All right, guys. I appreciate it. I do have to drop. I'll listen to the uh, recording. And Richard, thanks for everything you do for us. Thanks. Anytime, man. Anytime. So, uh, any other questions coming from the audience? Gavin, I know you keep bringing your, your screen on. You, you, got a, you got a question. So, we'd love to have you ask it. Or no, you're good. All right, cool. So, so I want to sort of move on to, to a slightly different topic, Justin. Um, one of the things that, that we're hearing all of this year, and you know, you and I are alike in that we started in inside sales. Um, so, you know, I, I hear this question, how do you turn an outside rep into an inside rep? And I'm like, really? Like, come on. Like, is it that hard? What have you seen? And I'm I, to your point, I, I like that word, you know, that bias. I'm like, so I've been so biased to inside sales that, you know, we were called telesales for a while, which was, you know, of course, insulting. But um, how do you turn, what advice do you give to give those outside reps and make them inside reps? Because the world is going to shift heavily. Yeah. The, the, ni the nice thing about the shift is the deals need to get done. So there's no more of that um, old school mentality of, I won't sign a deal till I've seen the whites of their eyes and I've shaken their hands. You know, it's like now that's like lethal. So um, big deals are getting done. It's like, you know, when they start selling cars on eBay or, you know, remote car sales without ever stepping into it. So the beauty is that the buying climate is open. And then if you're an outside seller that's gotten by with tonality and charisma or whatever that X factor is that you have this relational skill with people, there's a couple of things. So Zoom is actually an impediment. You can only have 16 Zoom calls a day on 30 minute blocks from an eight to five. And people are Zoom slammed. And so I don't use a lot of Zoom because I can talk to 30 people a day, 50 people a day, seven minute call there, seven minute call there. I call people all the time out of the blue. Scott knows I used to call Scott Lee. to be the Empire Stable. It's like 7 p.m. Like, hey, Scott. <laughs> I just call him randomly on a cell because it's fast. Don't take a ton of his time. I have a question. 
well, I can chat to him and wait for it. And that's cool too. But I'm, I'm kind of just wanting to build maybe a, a just unique connection. So, you know, calling people, you know, networking around, like you're on LinkedIn and you're just having these blazing chats while you're multitasking the other person, you know, like I'm on here giving a webinar, but I'm talking over here, like turn some stuff off, pick a person and actually just connect with them for a short amount of time, but hundred percent. It's not being done a lot. Everyone's multitasking everyone else. But I think that's the beauty of the field rep. What do you think the, what do you think they're afraid of? What do you think those outside field reps are afraid of? When they keep when they you know have to come inside is it just because it's emotion they don't know is it new right so you know you know is it oh my god i'm going to be micromanaged because now they know everything i'm doing like sales after you're a veteran in it is a lot like baseball and pitches you know that that knuckleball or that certain fastball a certain tell when the you know, I, I, you know, I, you, you have this, this play that you run, that's you strike them out, or you have this pitch you can hit where you can hit it out of the park. And when you're a field rep, like I used to go to events and do these dinners. And then when I was closing the deals, I just ordered like Justin wine. Cause it's famous the Justin bottles of wine. Like I had all these in-person motions that were hilarious and interesting. And I had a whole world of events and ton, I closed tons of deals cause I just knew people. And it's very hard in the synthetic and sterility of sitting back behind screens in 2D. Now, all these companies are going to start building us 3D software. So what Mark Zuckerberg's trying to do is to go up into a virtual world and be in three dimensions is probably helpful because 2D environments really hurt us. Uh, tonality is 90%. And then, you know, you're reading me, you're thin slicing all of my facial recognition. You know, you go deep into the Amazon rainforest and you find a person that has never seen someone from New York city, they make the exact same facial expressions. Emotions are identical. Exactly. Right. So the, the problem is that we've kind of cut off our human to human interaction. So the more you can do video, the more you can get face on the screen, but the more you can show you care by giving the focus seven minutes of you showing a person you're doing nothing else, but talking to them and they can really feel the intensity of your focus will make you stand out, really stand out. Um, I'm bad at this. So, and, and, right and, so, and so field reps fear is that they lose that ability. Now, yeah. So they, the thing they know they have, that thing, that X factor thing that has done the deals, like, you know, their, <laughs> their special sauce gets cut off. And now they have to find it again in this. They've moved from 3D to 2D, right? It's like yeah. the, the aha video where they go into the cartoon. Yeah. They've gone so the other way. Another Scott, do you know the aha video? Do you, do you know that one Take from on the eighties? So. No, I, I know the song. I don't, I, I don't know the video. So I know the song. Uh, one of the things I've learned this in the last few months from, from a woman I'm doing some training coach classes with watch the eyebrows, watch the eyebrows as someone speaks. Like even Justin, when he gets excited, his eyebrows go up and you know, we always look <laughs> at this, you know, we always look at this piece. But sometimes you need to look at the eyebrows because this is what you're looking for, not the arms crossing, right? So pay attention to the face more than you pay attention to just the body. So it was an interesting, it was an interesting thing that I learned recently. So um, I know we've got, uh, Charles got a, a question. So Charles, jump on, uh, I unmuted you and we'll go from hey there. Hey dudes. So uh, my question was, uh, I'll just read it verbatim. Basically, other than the obvious things like product knowledge or sort of leadership and things like that, what kind of things should a new hire pay attention to at a new job? Is this Keystone? It is. Cool. Um, some people are in some of my communities under different names, but I, I recognize your voice. That's an important <laughs> one. So specifically new hires in this new world, what to pay attention to? Um, I met an executive from Marketo. He's at Sinkery now. His name's Scott. He was number 10 at Marketo. He, he sits with his phone. His, he checked his phone number, his cell phone, and all the databases. No one calls him. He tells me, I said, for real? He's like, yeah, no one calls me. He said, anyone calls me. Someone calls me and it gives me a bad call. I pick it up. I take the meeting because no one calls me. And I'm like, that's so bizarre. He's like a, I think he's like a CRO or an SVP at this Sinkery company. He's all over the LinkedIn feeds. I'm seeing him commenting all the time. We do this all, Scott and I will give out our, well, I'll give out Scott's cell phone number. <laughs> Richard gives give my mine. phone number out. That's yeah. hilarious. But I give mine out and we tell people, call us, text us. And nobody does. It's bizarre, right? It's, like my, my phone yeah. number is in my LinkedIn profile, you know, and I get hit up with these stupid messages on LinkedIn. It's like, 
at least make a phone call, right? So this is the danger is that you think you're making progress because you're talking to a human over digital, but you're not. So I met with this financial advisor, my friend's dad, uh, he's at Oppenheimer has like 500 million under management. I was like, what's the secret to comms and client handling? Because if you've got like that much money under management and something goes wrong, I just feel like someone's going to come in your office and tear your head off. Like, how do you keep these people calm? Right. (laughs) And he tells me, he's like, he's like, if you sit down with someone and talk about their finances and you sit calmly in front of them, Okay. The next wave, the phone call, he's like, that's here. And the phone calls here and the internet, like here's the top of the building, the middle of the building is the phone and the basement is the social media. And knowing that, why would you be down in, this is amplification. This is, this is fun. This is luxury, but this like, you know, and we can't get face to face now, but I over-prioritize the, the uh, intimacy of just the one-to-one not one-to-one viewed in a feed, not we're on LinkedIn, you know, BBM and on our Blackberry. Like I, this is like, it's hard to explain. It's, there's a different caliber to that type of communication. So when you're ramping up everything you can do to get face-to-face. And so I do this thing called dialing on signals and it's really, it's rare. Someone views a profile and it's my prospect. I call them. Someone starts lighting up a chat in LinkedIn. I call them. Hey, I'm, I'm looking yes. at this chat. You're commenting. Nobody does this like one in a thousand people. Why would you do that? Because I'm going to get carpal tunnel. I mean, I like I type 14 hours a day. I mean, I don't want to type anymore. I want to talk to you. You, I'm I'm watching someone doing hundreds of words in this little quagmire here. I'm just going to pick up and be like, you obviously don't like (laughs) this idea. Um, What do you really think? Uh, Can we just chat about it? You know? (laughs) That's awesome. Well, this has flown by. So thanks so much, Justin, for, for joining us. Uh, obviously, people can find Justin on LinkedIn. Justin, feel free to give out your phone number to see if people will actually call you uh, if you want. I, I would, but check this out. The founder of LifeLock, he started driving a truck around with his social security number. Yeah, I remember and that. To this day, he's on the dark web with his identity yeah. stolen. So he failed. <laughs> uh, <laughs> <laughs> that has nothing to do with anything. You can have my number. Um, it's it's actually in every database accurately. So uh, yeah. It's, it's awesome. Uh, quick shout out to Vidyard, uh, Reggie.ai, um, Outreach.io, and of course, Salesforce for sponsoring these events and helping us do these things. And thank you all for your time. Um, just, you know, as a, a quick reminder, we're doing it, Scott and I are doing an SKO event, um, how to plan your SKO coming up soon. I'm going to be also doing another event with, uh, Vidyard on how to do video. So feel free to check out my website to find that stuff. And I will quickly put the SKO prep in the chat. So if people want to go register, they can hit Scott and I up on LinkedIn. If you find my phone number on there, it's not hard. Feel free to call me, but, uh, Thanks, everybody. We really appreciate everyone's time and uh, look forward to seeing you at the next one. Yeah, I just want to really appreciate everyone. And uh, thanks so much. See you soon.